Hello and welcome to Iron Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zupko. Today, I'm interested in Russia's role in the Middle East, especially after the invasion in Ukraine, especially after bad events and, and sad events that are going on in the international dynamics related to Russia. I would like to know how the Russia is doing in the Middle East. Uh, what are the objectives? What are the security objectives, geopolitical objectives? And all this is going to be answered by my today's guest, Daniel Rakov. Daniel, welcome. Thank you, Martin, for inviting me to speak. Daniel is an expert on Russian policy in the Middle East and a great power competition in the region. He is a senior researcher at Tel Aviv University's Aerom Center for Air and Space Studies, also at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. He served in the Israeli Defense Forces for over 20 years, mainly in the Israeli Defense Intelligence. From 2019 to 2021, he was a research fellow at the Russia Studies Program at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. So that's about Daniel. And let's go for the, let's start with the first question. Uh, we know Russia is in, in some way connected to Syria. So, so my first question is to what extent has Russia's involvement in Syria been motivating by geopolitical objectives and how does this involvement reflect Russia's broader strategy in the Middle East? So when Russia invaded Syria or intervened in the Syrian civilian war in 2015, there was a lot of discussions whether the main reason is that what Russia was uh, talking about, which is fighting the terrorism and trying to uh, propose to the United States a joint coalition against terror, global coalition against terror, or it's uh, about geopolitical motivations. And I would say that not that Russia is not uh, fearful of uh, terror, and indeed there were uh, inside of uh, Daesh, ISIS, uh, persons who, uh, with a large group of people who was uh, originally from former Soviet Union or former Russian Federation, uh, from the territory of Russian Federation, but uh, I think that the main issue was the geopolitics. Uh, this, uh, during this time, President Obama uh, was, tell, uh, was describing Russia as uh, not really a global power. And Russia wanted to prove that indeed it was. And one of the main issues is, uh, to do to prove it was to, uh, to, uh, to prove that it is able to project military power uh, far away from its borders. So, Far away is quite difficult for Russia because its uh, army was not uh, built for really to project uh, conventional military power anywhere on, on the globe like United States. But uh, to project itself into Syria was uh, just comfortable uh, distance, especially having a local uh, partner to work with, Assad regime. So my my understanding was in 2015, and it is still today, that the main reason was to try to uh, establish that Russia is able, is, is a military power of global scale, which is able to stage a large-scale intervention. Uh, and indeed, for, uh, we don't know when really it started, but at least it started since summer of uh, 2015, and in uh, September 30th, so about months, months and a half, Russians established two bases in Syria, aerial base and naval base, aerial base in uh, Latakia, it's called Hamimim, and the naval base in Tartus, and uh, brought equipment and brought soldiers and brought uh, aircraft, and was able at the end of September to start its anti-terrorist uh, operation in Syria. Uh, and we can uh, speak about its success uh, later on. But I think that they, they, they proved that they can do at least something. And uh, many European countries cannot do what Russia did now, even nowadays. So it is not uh, something to, uh, to disregard. Uh, 
And in that time, ISIS was one of the main issues in the global affairs. So Russia proved itself as somebody who is able to give, uh, uh, to be involved in a major international affair, to prove it is a worthful uh, partner for regional uh, for for a small country like Syria, and for Russians did say Syrian regime. Uh, it was an opportunity to portray Russian uh, military capabilities to, in order to uh, uh, to sell uh, to sell weapons. So and, and through Syria, Russia became an important actor for all of the countries involved in Syria. And besides the international actors, uh, we there is Turkey and Iraq, and Jordan, and Lebanon, and Israel, and the International Coalition Against Terror. So just by being uh, involved in Syria, Russia became important for almost any country in the Middle East. And I think that uh, I will end the answer to this question, that uh, Russia continues, we are only already eight years since, Russia continues to, uh, to stick to its uh, commitment to Syrian regime, because it understands that it is a rather cheap endeavor currently to continue this uh, involvement, but it does serve a lot for Russia, for Russia regional prestige and for Russia international prestige. And therefore, I think that Russia will continue to be in Syria as one of major footprint in the in the area in the region. And Daniel, do we have any evaluation or any reports about the cooperation between Russian army and Syrian army in terms, you know, when you have the NATO countries, they, co they collaborate and there are like exercises together and, and they, they basically say, you know, the successes and failures. But in terms of Russia and Syria, sometimes it looks like Russia is in Syria because of Assad regime only. But when it comes to collaboration between the armies, like naturally, that collaboration is not that much, you know, research. So what, what do you think about these two armies? Is Russia a good partner for Syrian army in terms of technology and weapons? Or it's mostly that Russia's geopolitical interests prevail? So I think that Russia, when it entered Syria, Russia, this is something to remember about uh, Putin's regime, so his his lessons from the Soviet Union, and the way Soviet Union has collapsed. So, and he, and it is very important for him throughout his presidentship uh, that he doesn't want Russia uh, to collapse because of too much burden on the on the budget. So, in, during the current war, uh, he is less strict on this issue, but uh, during the Syrian invasion. It was very important so the, the invasion would be cheap. So the, the fact that you had the regime and that uh, gave Russia bases and some assets, it was cheap. They had another partner, which was Iran, with its military in Syria and Hezbollah militias and other militias uh, and the Syrian army. So the, the Syrian army were the boots on the ground and Russia could make this campaign on mostly an aerial campaign and make it uh, cheap from the point of view of um, not a lot of danger for Russian personnel, and they do not need a lot of soldiers there. So, uh, and since then, so we around 2016, 17, the, the the borders of control of Assad regime has stabilized. So the Russians have succeeded to enlarge, to make it stable, to enlarge the borders, his controls. Uh, much more than 2015, but there are large chunks of the country which are not controlled by Assad regime and cannot be uh, returned currently. It's mostly the uh, east and north part of Syria, uh, the Kurdish area, which is uh, under the auspices of the United States and Russians will not uh, go to war with the United States. So they try to influence it in hybrid ways, as people say, but uh, but they don't confront it directly. So for for long, so uh, the Kurdish area is beyond their uh, control. At the north, there is uh, uh, several chunks of territory alongside Turkish border, which either are occupied 
occupied directly by Turkey or under Turkish auspices of the Idlib enclave. And at the south, there is Altanf area, which is also controlled by the United States with a small contingent. So the Russians, they, in order to keep the situation the way it is, they don't need a lot of boots on the ground. And they, the Syrian army and the Iranians control, uh, try to control the situation. For There were times when Wagner people were helping Russians, especially the commercial interests. So the, the, and, and from the Russian point of view, I think that another historical lesson is the from uh, Soviet involvement with Egypt. So Soviets were involved with Egypt since the 50s, and they've put a lot of effort and resources into Nasser regime until Nasser died and Sadat, President Sadat uh, came to uh, the power to, uh, to Egypt and he sent the Russians away and he turned uh, his uh, allegiance to the United States ever since. And for the Russians, it's a historical lesson. So they don't need the Syrian regime too strong. So it must be strong enough to stand on its feet and to be able to defend itself. The Iranians have to take some of the burden for, so the uh, involvement would be cheap. Russia needs the Syrian regime to uh, save, uh, to be to keep safe the Russian military bases in Syria. And the Russians are helping Syrian regime, but it seems that especially currently during the Ukraine war, they cannot afford to, to bring sophisticated weapons uh, to Syria. And even more, uh, there was S-300 uh, air defense system that was supposedly at the Syrian hands since 2018. And then, and last year, in 2022, the Russians have taken it away in order to upgrade to, uh, because they needed it to defend Russian soil. So it seems that sophisticated weapons uh, are less uh, to be delivered to Syrian regime. If there is some acute need, uh, they will they will do it. They will support it. But I think that the uh, so this uh, alliance of Russians, Syrians, and uh, ad hoc alliance, I must say, uh, they can uh, withstand the challenges they they face. And last last thing, but to speak about the essence of Russians of Russian. Uh, alliances at large, so they say there is a known uh, uh, proverb by the saying by the Russian Emperor Alexander III that Russia has only two allies, its army and its fleet, so Russia is not used to have allies. So Russia, so Syrians and uh, Iranians are partners, that they are not really allies, and Russia is used to by itself, because it finds ad hoc partners to promote uh, ad hoc interests. And do, do, do Russians still operate in Latakia and Tartus? Uh, like, what is the stage of those two military bases at the moment? Yeah, so uh, Russia in 2017, if I'm not wrong, Russia signed an agreement, interstate agreement between Syria and Russia, which uh, to lease Tartus and Khmeimim, the two bases, for 49 years and automatic extension for, I think, for 25 years. So uh, they, they intend to be there for a long time. And, uh, and uh, this is the, the same, they, they've signed similar agreements with Armenia and the uh, Central Asian countries and uh, Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia. So this is a standard procedure. So it would be very difficult to oust the Russians away. So they are there. Uh, nowadays, you cannot uh, hide anything from the satellites. So, uh, so on a daily basis, you get uh, reports by uh, either by satellite uh, providers or by uh, people who amateur uh, uh, people who like to to analyze uh, the satellite picture, so you constantly have uh, analysis of activity by the Russian Air Force, Russian Navy, 
from Syria. It seems that the, it is the Russian contingent in Syria is smaller uh, uh, number-wise. Uh, the, so the number of soldiers than it was in uh, 24th of February 2022. Uh, it is for sure that the number of uh, uh, of ships diminished because of the before just before the war the Russian concentrated in the East Mediterranean uh, the largest naval buildup they had since the Soviet times it was uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean for many months and then some of it moved away to the uh, Pacific Ocean to the Baltic uh, Sea but still there are several uh, ships here they shadow the Na Na uh, NATO activity, they, uh, they patrol the Syrians, so the, so the Russians are still there. We know that there is a emerging cooperation between Iran and Russia in terms of drones. And we had some talks with experts and many journalists who are concerned that Russia may supply some advanced weapons to Iran as in exchange for the drones and for some technologies uh, from Iran. What will be the security implication for the Middle East if this happens? There is a, since since 2015, which was also a year when uh, JCPOA joined comprehensive uh, plan of action, which is a nuclear agreement between Iran and the uh, the P5 and plus one, the uh, permanent five members of the United Nations Security Council and European Union and Germany uh, was uh, concluded. So since then, there is a lot of uh, uh, debates whether Russians will supply Iran with weapons. So uh, even before the, the, the JCP was concluded, Russians suddenly unfreezed the S-300 deal they freezed in 2010 and supplied it to Syria. And since then, people were speaking about Sukhoi 30, Sukhoi 35, uh, Yakovlev uh, 130. Uh, all of these are military aircraft or Yakovlev 130. It's a, it's a training aircraft or submarines and air defense systems. So, there are, so the Iranians cannot, uh, they do not produce some uh, sophisticated uh, military platforms. But uh, in 2020, the arms embargo included in JCPOA expired, and despite this, the Russians didn't supply uh, the Iranians uh, a lot of uh, finished weaponry. In in less than a month, I think, or in a month from now, in months from now, uh, there will another aspect of uh, sanctions on Iran will expire. It's a sanction of ballistic missiles. So. Uh, Due to these sanctions, Iran should not receive or trade or export uh, missile uh, technology. But uh, the drones you are talking about, in the essence, they are part of missile technology. So there's a, a debate whether the uh, export of, uh, the, of these drones, or the buying of these drones by Russia, whether it violates MTCR uh, treaty uh, missile uh, uh, the MTCR, which is it's a treaty dealing with the restrictions on export of uh, missile technology. So, and Russia was, uh, I think, to, during 2022, uh, chairman of MTCR, and there, nevertheless, it it bought these uh, drones. So, I think that Russia is not there is no problem uh, for Russia. Of restrictions, it's it's only in the, in itself. So the, the mere fact that Iran is sanctioned, or, or if Russia is signed at some treaty, the main issue is uh, Russian calculus of interest. How will the Russian concrete interest will be hurt or promoted uh, due to the some uh, to export or import of military technology? So Russia would like to be pro portrayed as a. Uh, Serious international partner, which which uh, 
uh, which does uh, keeps its obligations, but uh, but there are many many examples where it does not. So what? How? When when Russia decides whether to keep its obligations or not? So, for instance, in drones, they 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 needed them direly, uh, desperately. So they uh, they concluded the deal. Uh, since then, not a lot of uh, military equipment went to Iran. So we've seen, I think, only last month, two Yakovlev Yak-130 planes landing in Iran. So I think that the issue is that major weapon systems, it's difficult to hide them from the satellite. So if they are there, people will see them. If they are in Iran, all the countries which are enemies of Iran, which is Israel and the uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries, they will pressure Russia. Russia is connected to the Gulf countries, so it doesn't want to give uh, too much at once. There are other ways in which it, Russia can compensate Iran. So, and there, and there are uh, items that cannot be, it's difficult to, to, uh, to picture them by satellite. So, not full, fully assembled systems, but disassembled uh, system technologies know-how. This is something which can travel more easily through between Russia and Iran, and they have a common border through the Caspian Sea, so it's difficult to catch them. So I think that the main issue for the countries which are uh, worried about this uh, relationship and Israel is one of these is that uh, Russia, Russia still, despite its uh, being in a gap. Vis-a-vis the West, it still has many technologies which which are better than Iranian, especially in military field, in nuclear field, and uh, there is a fear that uh, this uh, growing dependence will bring the Russians uh, to give Iran technology, not necessarily fully assembled weapons, and even if not Russia, there's a possibility that uh, there will be Russian scientists or Russian engineer which will work with the Iranians. Uh, without the permission of the Iranian of the Russian government, so this is uh, an issue to watch. And another issue to watch is the growing Russian-Iranian uh, economic cooperation, which is also a significant issue because, despite the fact that the two countries are close for many years, there Israel had more uh, trade with Russia than Russia and Iran. And Israel is a ten million people country, and Iran is almost 80 million people country. So what is uh, so one of the issues was uh, lack of common interest and uh, and uh, competition in the markets and uh, what has changed that now Russia and, and also there was a contradiction because Russia many times joined the Western sanctions and now Russia is not joining realistically the Western sanctions and they need they need the Iranians to circumvent the sanctions on, on Russia and Russia has to reroute all of its economy to the east to this uh, to the to Asia and therefore it, uh, because it cannot own, cannot sell its its commodities to Europe and therefore it needs uh, Iran to go through Iran in order to build a new international trading corridor through Iranian soil. And now we see much more uh, economic cooperation and the Russian-Iranian relationship suddenly became uh, multidimensional. It's not only security, it's not only political cooperation against the United States, it also has a strong economic component. And may I ask you, Daniel, if, if you're speaking about Iran and Russia, is this cooperation um, because of the regime in Iran or is this cooperation because the whole community, like business community, military community in Iran, they favor Russia as a partner? I think that there is a there is a, a lot of discussions. How, what how should we describe this relationship? Because uh, in the recent months, the Russians, unlike beforehand, started to to describe this relationship as strategic partnerships, uh, which is uh, previously they would say it's it's a relationship aiming towards strategic partnerships. So they've upgraded their uh, uh, way they speak about it. But the two countries uh, have a lot of uh, contradictions for, for, yes. from, from their common history. So the Iranians are still very, very suspicious about the Russians. 
and and the and the the recent decays even the, the, the and even the recent years didn't prove for the Iranians that they can fully count on Russia but they not that Iranians have many choices uh, like the Russians so they work together uh, where, where, where they identify common interests and they try to hedge so they will not be hurt so I think also it's most both the leadership and the, and the public many times you hear in the Iranian newspapers criticism about being too dependent on Russia and not going far away and for the Russians uh, you know the Russians are quite xenophobic uh, as a nation so the, it's it's a it's a dialectic so russia is an empire built of many many nations and it, 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 if you speak to mr Putin, it's, it's a unique civilization being able to accommodate many different nations and they work with all of the countries of the global south and nevertheless if you pick the uh, mean russian in the street i suppose that he will try to uh, he will uh, not be friendly towards uh, the Muslim Iran. So, so there are some contradictions, but the two countries are squeezed by the common enemy, the United States and the West. So they identify common problems, common uh, cap capabilities to help each other. And uh, when suddenly many sanctions were imposed on Russia, you would read the Russian newspapers and the many Russian reporters would go to Iran and say, okay, this is an example of a nation living for many, many dozens of years under harsh sanctions. And you see, they can cope, they're, they're happy. So we should, we should study it from their example. There is China in the Middle East. Does it make Russia stronger or China is maybe, maybe complicating some goals, some strategic goals? Of, of Russian interest in the Middle East. So how is it? How is China influencing Russian diplomacy? So I think there is a... Uh, Russians are both... There is a need to cooperate with China, but there is a great apprehension to be to become a senior... Uh, not a senior, the young partner of, of, of China. So this there's constant dialectics in, in any... Feel, but I think that in Middle East it is less acute because both two countries they don't aspire to be regional policemen. So the Russians do not aspire to control the Middle East. They need, they only need to to promote their interests here. And the China is similar. So and in, even for China, Middle East, I think it is important. It is less vital than it, is, it became following the war than from than for Russia. So it is important, but the, the Russia the China is still uh, not much invested here. Uh, so there is some competition, but mostly it's a complementary role for the two countries to uh, to be against the United States to provide the regional actors uh, opportunity to hedge as against the United States. I think even for Russia, it is helpful. So because Russia is now toxic, to, dealing with Russia is toxic for any country in the world because it, uh, there is a price to pay uh, many times vis-a-vis -vis uh, the country's ties with, with the West. If you trade Russia, it's more difficult to maintain relationship with Western countries. Uh, but but the, for the Middle Eastern countries, I think uh, they think, okay, if we will now severe our relations with Russia, what will China say? Or how will we be able to, to maintain our freedom of movement afterwards? Because the, ne the next uh, would be pressure to severe times with China, and, chi and China is an important uh, player. So I think that uh, in that, uh, that way, there is a complementary role. Russia is more active in the Middle East, both militarily and politically. China is sitting from behind. Many times it gives Russia to lead and to absorb all the pressures, uh, while China uh, enjoys uh, the, the results. I think uh, that there might be also competition in the military sphere. So it's more difficult for Russia to export weapons, both because it needs weapons now for its war with, with Ukraine, 
and the reputation of Russian weapons suffer during this war. So there is a niche being opened to China. There are some signs that China uh, exploded niche, but not too much. And the same might, might go with the nuclear uh, reactors export. So, uh, and for China also, it is uh, the, the world, it, it has its global risks and it has its global uh, uh, perks and the uh, opportunity to learn, opportunity to, lo to, to look what, how does Russia act in the Middle East and, uh, and to try to project it in the scenario of future, what will happen if China invades Taiwan. So, I would say, uh, there are tensions, but it's not very tense co uh, competition. Uh, during Netanyahu's campaign, election campaign, uh, I watched some documentaries, some reports, and there were pictures of Putin on the buildings. Uh, Netanyahu was quite friend with Putin. And, and Russia was portrayed in Israel as a, as a strong partner. We have to say that also because of the big diaspora living in Israel. But after invasion, many things change. The top scientists, the artists, they escaped to Israel and different countries because they didn't want to be a part of that sort of politics of Putin regime. And Netanyahu has internal problems with judicial reform and protests in Tel Aviv and Israel. So, so it looks like on both sides, the situation has changed dramatically. How did this impact the geopolitics of Russia and Israel in terms of their relations? So there are many processes that uh, unveiled during this period of time. So we had five elections. It's not only one election campaign. And we have the Russian-Ukrainian war. And we have uh, so the international environment has changed so, so it's too complicated for a five minute answer but i will say that uh, when netanyahu came back to prime minister's office uh, the last days of, uh, of 2022 he did receive uh, just before he entered the office he when he was all over the uh, it was understood that he will be re return to be a prime minister so just before he uh, has sworn his current uh, government, he received a phone call, congratulatory phone call from Putin. It was two months after the elections, but it was not as an acting prime minister. So he has got this phone call. And since then, the two leaders didn't talk. So we are now already uh, almost uh, more than nine months that he's in office and he, they didn't talk, they didn't meet. So I think that he understands that uh, it's, it, it is not, uh, uh, doesn't gain him any political advantage to speak to Mr. Putin and, my, and it might be even toxic because there is a both internal uh, debate inside Israel whether what is, what should be the relationship with Russia and there are pressures from the from outside. So uh, nevertheless, I think that since Netanyahu was prime minister, he was prime minister since 2009. And then he uh, stopped being a prime minister for about one and a half years in 2021, 2022. And now he's back. So but I, I think and, and we have two prime ministers in between Bennett and Lapid. And I think that Throughout this time, in general, there is the same uh, policy Russia, Israel has towards Russia. So uh, Russia is a partner, it's not an ally. Uh, there were joint, possible joint interests, especially when Israeli Air Force is on the daily basis uh, attacks on the Syrian soil and Russia, the uh, Russian Air Force also is active there and there is a need to deconflict and to not to interfere. So it was very important for Netanyahu and his subsequent governments and also currently. So uh, Israel is uh, in between, unlike the countries in the Western camp where Israel, if you 
meet any Israeli, they will say that we are in the West, despite we are, the fact that we are in the Middle East, but we are uh, we are in the West in our in our understanding. So unlike the Western countries, Israel did not severe relations with Russia. Israel did not impose sanctions, despite the fact that it does fulfill sanctions uh, by the United States if they influence the Israeli companies. We have flights, direct flights with Russia, and uh, and still there is beneath the level of below the level of uh, prime minister. There is a, a, there are connections, not many. Even uh, ministerial connections are uh, very scarce. But one month ago, suddenly, all of a sudden, uh, the Israeli ambassador in Moscow signed a culture agreement uh, with the Russian culture minister. So. Uh, we do have relationship there, uh, but I think that it more, more the potential of these relations became much smaller than it was uh, beforehand, and I think it's it's it, it's more uh, trying to maintain uh, and uh, the what's what exists, and it's very difficult to develop. So it's impossible to develop technological cooperation. Uh, even beforehand, it was almost impossible to develop security cooperation because is uh, besides the deconfliction between the two armies. Uh, the trade is under pressure from the sanctions. It, I, I think that 2022 there was a smile, a small raise in the in the trade. I think it because uh, because Russia tried to uh, to find alternatives to its European trade. I'm not sure what will be in 2023, but I think there, there are a lot of obstacles. Um, so it's difficult to explain on a political level, it's difficult to, to grow. And uh, so uh, so Israel is, is balancing. And, and many times people ask me, so, okay, Israel wants to be inside the Western camp. Israel says it's a small country, but it's a, it's a strong country because it has defense industry and etc. Big army. So how come, unlike the Baltics, for instance, Israel will not uh, supply Ukraine uh, with weapons? And uh, we do look at Ukraine. Israel condemned Russian invasion. It, it voted with the United with the Western camp in the United Nations uh, General Assembly, and uh, so. Formally, Israel is against the war and uh, supports the Ukrainian territorial integrity. So how come didn't Israel help Ukraine only in the uh, non-lethal weapons? Uh, and the, the explanation is that for the Baltic states or for Poland or for, England, or for Finland, which border Russia, Russia is the main existential threat for their national security. And the war in Ukraine only uh, underlined the uh, the risk is high <laughs> there may be next in the row so it's it's better to to give weapons to ukraine so that to postpone this scenario and both those countries are also enjoying the defense of nato israel is alone it doesn't have formal alliances it has a strong relationship with the united states but it's not a formal alliance and the United States is distracted currently, both with the, with the Ukrainian war, with the scenario of of, uh, of Taiwan. So, and Israel has is is. It's not that we are waiting for some future war which might come or might not come during the days of the Russian-Ukraine war. Had uh, I think three large-scale operations with the Palestinians. Gaza and Judea and Samaria. There's a constant threat that uh, in any moment there might be explosion of our relationship with, with Hezbollah, which is called militia, but uh, it has a bigger army than many European armies has with 100,000 rockets arsenal and the ballistic missiles and air defense systems and, uh, and very large, uh, skillful uh, military power on the land forces. And there is a uh, Syria which is being, uh, so it's uh, it's weak, but it's become stronger and more stable. It's also not friendly. And we have Iran, which, uh, which uh, slowly but steadily 
gets closer to nuclear weapons and enlarges its ballistic missile arsenal. So Israel has a lot of problems. Uh, it, uh, it needs most of its weapons. Indeed, Israel exports weapons. Uh, the, but there is an understanding, I think, that uh, if Israel will sell lethal weapons to uh, to Ukraine, the Russians will try to uh, rep- to retaliate against Israel. And Israel would not like to have another uh, hot conflict. If you ask me, I think that Israel could do more uh, behind the scenes without uh, announcing it through the third countries, etc. And uh, but still, uh, if you I think that the important issue to look is uh, public opinion polls. And we had several uh, weeks ago, uh, Mitwin Institute in Israel has uh, made a poll, uh, which was published at the beginning of September. And, and you see there is Ukraine fatigue in Israel. So only, I think, uh, uh, a third of population uh, which are those who are interested in the war, say that Israel should uh, make much more active role helping Ukraine, confronting Russia, and most, about 66% of the population, are either indifferent or against it. So, And uh, because it's, it is not an important issue in internal politics, I think it's uh, less than in European countries, uh, you see that it's not less of a pressure of an issue for, for the government. So I hope I've, it, it's more clear now. One notion is the Abraham Accords, which uh, Israel basically was leading this diplomatic initiative. What was the reaction of Moscow to this initiative? So, it's, uh, so I, I'm not sure whether they were caught unprepared, but uh, they didn't uh, go... Uh, they were not enthusiastic when it happened, I think, that because Russia would, at that time, it would like to try to make itself as a bridge maker between Israel and different countries in the Middle East. And here you see that not only Israel succeeds to, di- to make direct connections, the, the one who facilitated this relationship was the Trump administration. So, uh, so Russians were not very eager, but nevertheless, the Gulf countries are new partners of Russia. So, they've, uh, if in the in the past they were competing, and the relationship was very uh, rocky one. So, since 2016-17, the OPEC Plus. group was established of Russia and Saudi Arabia now control the main uh, oil cartel in the world. And they have a lot of, uh, they found out that they have a lot of interests in common. So not that they fond of each other, not that the Gulf countries would like Russians to be their patron, but they have common interests. Each country has their common interests. And, uh, and for Russia, it does open opportunities. So, so after a short surprise, I think the Russians started to think, okay, so how can Russia uh, enjoy this relationship? And I think that they they are uh, they understand its effect. It's not against them. Uh, it does open some possibilities in trade, I think, in politics. So, so they work with it. Um, I think that... you. If we look forward, so the main issue Israel looks currently is uh, is to promote, to continue these Abraham Accords, which were signed between mostly UAE, Bahrain and Israel and Morocco. And also there was some connection with Sudan, but it is a low-key connection. But the the main issue for Netanyahu government is to try to, uh, to make an agreement with Saudi Arabia, hopefully. Saudi Arabia as the most important, uh, some religious symbol in the Muslim world will uh, carry away together with it some other big Muslim countries. 
both in the Gulf and the Arab world, uh, maybe Indonesia and Malaysia. So the main issue for Israel currently, and there is a, a trilateral uh, deal being discussed currently between Israel and the United States and Saudi Arabia. So Israel would like to normalize the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia demands from the United States uh, the same that Iran got in JCPOA. So it wants uh, a right to enrich uranium on, on Saudi soil, which Israel understands which, uh, that it uh, promotes, it makes so it will make Saudi Arabia closer to a nuclear bomb because this enrichment of uranium uh, in civilian and the nuclear sphere is the same. Uh, civilian and the military nuclear uh, rearm is the same. So this is a, a big question mark. And also the Saudis demand from Netanyahu government to make some uh, rapprochement or some gestures towards the Palestinians, which is an issue which is Difficult for Netanyahu, it involves also Israeli internal politics. So, uh, and uh, where does it connect Russia to? So, if uh, if this agreement would be concluded, it seems that Saudi Arabia will also conclude uh, some strategic alliance with the United States, uh, sign which might be the uh, demand the, the Saudis to diminish their relationship with, with the Russians, which went currently Saudis and the Russians, uh, as I mentioned, they control OPEC, and OPEC is the lifeline of Russian economy because the export of gas and the oil and their derivatives is the most important inter income of Russian uh, economy. So this is the way it might connect, and uh, so I, but I still I think that Israel is viewed as an minor actor, and the main actors are Saudis and the United States, and therefore I think that uh, even if this agreement will be concluded, Russia will suffer for it, they will, uh, they will criticize mainly United States and Saudis and not Israel. One of the strong uh, international notion or, or concept of Russia was always energy security and energy diplomacy especially before the invasion when the sanctions were less strict. Gazprom, uh, Lukoil, all those companies, they, they were internationally very active. How do you understand current situation with Russia's energy diplomacy in the Middle East? That's the first question. And the second question, we know that Russia is trying to export, especially Rosatom, nuclear energy power plants sort of projects to the Middle East, do you think that this might also be sort of, uh, you know, incentive that firstly the nuclear power goes, maybe nuclear weapon will follow? Okay, so there are two questions. I, mean, I will start with the gas and oil. So Russia tries to, so that it understands that it can, its trade with the Western world is, is diminishing and it will go even smaller than it is currently now. And it tries to maximize what it can from the non-Western world. And uh, so the Russian energy companies, they, they are mostly state companies or state control companies. So there is no, there is pri private, there are private companies in Russia, but they, um, completely aligned with the Russian state. They cannot go against it. So the, we'll see what the future will uh, will show us. But currently, they, they, they act in constraints. So they try to promote their business uh, in the sanctioned countries or in countries which, which uh, disregard the sanctions. So in the Middle East, yeah, for instance, the Gazprom, Blue Oil, they continue working with Iran. And the uh, Luke oil is strong in uh, in Iraq, uh, and uh, Russia looks at Turkey as a possibility to 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 be a middleman uh, for its gas exports because there is still and gas pipelines going to Europe, and they look at, at Turkey as some 
go-between, which in the future might buy Russian gas, blend it with the Turkish and Qatari and the, and etc., and sell it to, to Europe. So because uh, European market is much more profitable for Russia than all the other markets. But so they, I think that they would like to come back to it in some way. So, uh, and, and then there is, a, as I mentioned, OPEC, you, the, the, the capability to uh, coordinate the prices, coordinate the export is very important because the Middle Eastern countries and Russia, they owe each other dozens of billions of dollars a year because they do not compete each other they, they, because of this cartel. So I think this it is extremely important. Uh, and uh, maybe another aspect is the, and the, the Russia, one of the Russian main customers in energy sector is India. So currently, not to trade with India, Russia needs to ship the oil through the uh, Suez Canal. I think that uh, the idea is to try to build this logistic corridor through Iran, which will allow Russia to export oil through a railway, maybe in the future through to build a pipeline, to make swap deals. So this is also extremely important for the Middle East to be the transit country. Um, about gas, so Russia, Turkmenistan, Iran, and Qatar, for these countries, I think they are the biggest, the, the big four of the gas market. The Russians look at the possibilities to, to build, for many years, to build some kind of cartel. There is no cartel, but still, I think there is, uh, there is a lot of uh, discussion, and I, I will not be uh, very surprised if you will find out that behind the scenes there is some uh, coordination of the market. So, uh, also the last aspect, uh, I'm looking here on the, on the map and I see Africa and Africa is, look, Russia looks at Africa as a land of opportunities. Africa is less prone to fulfill sanctions and also Russia would like to, to make, uh, to develop African market as some a market for, for its uh, companies, and, uh, and here also Middle East is a transit. So in many aspects, I think uh, Middle East is important for the Russian energy companies, either directly or for coordination or the transit. As about the nuclear realm, so for Rosatom, for many years, Russians, uh, Russian state and Rosatom was its arm, was looking at the uh, uh, nuclear civilian export to become some uh, uh, influence lever uh, for, for long-term influence lever because in the Russian perception, if you build a nuclear reactor, it's almost for a century of relationship because you, you negotiate, you build it for at least 10 years, you operate it for some 60 years, you dismantle it, of 10 years, so it's an 80 years relationship. And during this time, there's a, the country buying Russian uh, nu nuclear reactors must uh, buy Russian expertise and support the nuclear fluid and so many uh, services. So this is this was the reason, the thinking in Russia in nuclear. We are one of the small uh, handful of. Uh, uh, Areas where Russia is realistically a world leader and could provide some financially solid solutions. So in the Middle East, there were three countries that uh, bought Russian uh, nuclear reactors. And so Middle East is a flagship for Russian nuclear reactor pro projects. Uh, there are four reactors being built in Turkey. There are four reactors being built in, in, in Egypt. And uh, in Iran, in Boucher, there's an active one, the first one in the Middle East, and Russians are slowly building another two. So and because of the sanctions, because of the situation, uh, so it's not easy for Russians to conclude new deals. It is important for the Russians to fulfill the existing one, to prove it is capable. And I think that... Uh, so 
if you ask Mr. Putin, if you ask the head of Rosatom, uh, it's a civilian issue only, but it does give the, the receiving end uh, a higher step towards a military project if, if they wouldn't like to develop these, because you you build four reactors, you, uh, you need several thousands of uh, technicians and say scientists and uh, support personnel and you and you work with nuclear reaction so you develop uh, this field and it is easier to develop yeah, military nuclear we are yeah i think that uh, the current situation in general so it's i think that the, the ukraine war have changed it uh, in my perceptions it's difficult to prove it's my theory that Russia after the uh, Ukraine war became much less obliged to a nuclear non-proliferation as an uh, as a principle and uh, so I don't think that Russians would uh, run to help Egypt or Iran or Turkey to go nuclear but I think it's uh, there are much more lacks in not preventing it, because I think that uh, it's a, it's not Russia's war to fight; it's a Western war to fight, uh, and Russia already lives with nuclear North Korea, nuclear China on its border, nuclear France, nuclear United States, nuclear uh, Great Britain, so Iran. Egypt, it will not change the situation completely. The last question for today's interview, and this question comes from students. In which way Russia is portrayed at the moment in the press in the Middle East? We would like to know if not only Israel, but also like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, Yemen, UAE, you know, are those countries very critical in the media when they are writing about Russia? Or this narrative is more neutral? Because in Europe, we have articles almost every day, you know, criticizing everything about Russia because of the invasion. And students are interested in if outside of the Europe, if this is the same or not. What would you say, Daniel? So I will admit that I do not follow it closely, but have some uh, articles that I read from time to time that I think that they, uh, the, ve the, the vector, the trend is uh, similar. That Middle Eastern countries like global South countries, they are not very much, they are the people and the governments, they are not very, very much in, uh, involved with the emotionally involved with, with Ukraine. They think that uh, the West is uh, hypocritical when they have problems, the West doesn't get involved. And here with, with the white people in Ukraine, they are, uh, they are very involved and they, they are demanding. Uh, they don't, they, I think that the liberal democratic values are not very, uh, important here for the governments and I think that the uh, even for the publics they're a little bit disillusioned after the uh, decade of uh, Arab Spring so in, and and also you have a Russian propaganda machine working uh, which is it is connected to the Russian uh, information domain information sphere they call it is connected through news aggregators to uh, Arab Middle Eastern countries uh, media. So the Russian generated news and easily uh, the Middle Eastern countries uh, information space. Uh, and uh, many times it's it's on equal weight. So with the Western narrative. So. Uh, so I think that in general, when I see public polls in the Middle Eastern countries, in general, uh, the, the public is less critical of Moscow, and it is uh, still seen as a global power. I think that the, the, there are countries where it is a little bit more weakened. There are 
countries where it is a little bit more strong. I think that in general, uh, China gets stronger in the Middle East vis-a-vis Russia and United States. And uh, I think that in information domain, in in the public opinion domain, uh, the fact is that there is no pressure from uh, f- from the people on the governments also. Not it's very important list, but uh, they are, they do pay attention, and there is no issue whatsoever. I think uh, about working with the uh, Russians, and uh, therefore uh, here it's it's also rather a successful story for Russia. Also, some some of the Russian uh, media venues they have. Uh, Channels speaking with in Arabic. They have there is Russian Arabic speaking t- television. Russian news agency has an agency. Several of those have uh, also Arabic channel, Turkish channel. I'm not sure. I, I don't think that they have a lot of in Persian, but Iran is not a problem. Daniel, thank you very much for your insightful thoughts and. Uh perfect analytical remarks that that open many perspectives and many many ideas for future research for our students and international audience i really enjoyed talking to you about uh, russia in the middle east because it's a complicated topic there are many countries very different countries but uh, russia is in somewhat uh, it's it's going through and it's it's diplomatically active in the middle east Therefore, I would encourage people, especially my students, to research Russia's role in the Middle East in a much more scale. So, Daniel, thank you again. Thank you for being on IR Thinker. Thank you, Martin, and uh, I wish you luck with this project. Which I know that it takes a lot of effort from you, but I think that it uh, gets a success. Uh, so, thank you for having me here, and good luck. Thank you and see you next time. Thank you.